Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. This is Cork Today. Cork Today with Patricia Messenger on C103. And a very good Tuesday morning to you as we welcome you along to the programme. John Paul, not with us again today. So Bernie taking your calls 0818103103. Anything you want to share with us, if you want to discuss anything that we are discussing on the programme, uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts and comments. You can text or WhatsApp to 086 103103. I'm so sad uh, to hear today that there was a further four people killed on our roads yesterday and within those four who died yesterday two of them were t- young teenage friends who died in Donegal but it means those four deaths yesterday we now have 10 more people have died on our roads so far this year in 2023 than died in the whole of last year and there's what just you know almost two full months to go and you know November December darkest months of the year, weather conditions and all of that. Uh, Often what happens is road deaths increase at this time of year. So God knows what type of a figure we are heading for for road deaths for this year. What more uh, can be done? And the two teenagers have been named uh, Alana Harkin and uh, Thomas Gallagher. They were both 18 and they were from the Inishon Peninsula in Donegal and they died when the car in which they were travelling in lost control and it ended up in a wooded area. Now it was at quarter to one in in the morning, there was another young uh, man in his teens also in the car. He was taken to hospital, but um, thankfully his injuries are understood not to be life threatened, not to be life threatening. And it seems they were returning from a restaurant shift, in a, you know, in a, working in a local, teenagers with you know, local jobs. One of them was in college. One was a, a leaving cert student, kind of a part time uh, job when this dreadful accident happened uh, at quarter to one in the morning. And then hours later, it was confirmed that a crash between a truck and an e-bike this was in Dublin the Dolphins Barn area of uh, Dublin at half past one no, half past 12, around lunchtime yesterday. That resulted in the death of the uh, cyclist. And then at four o'clock yesterday afternoon, there was a crash between two lorries. That was near Coot Hill in Monaghan. And that claimed the lives of one of the drivers, a man in his uh, 40s. And their deaths now bring the total number of people who have killed, been killed on our road so far this year to 165. That's 165 families who will sit down to Christmas dinner this year with a, with an empty uh, seat. Those figures are up by 39 when you compare to the 126 victims at this same point last year and it was even less the year before, it was 117. The latest fatal accidents brings the total such collisions to 152 because unfortunately in some of those accidents more than one people died like what happened in Donegal uh, yesterday. There were 119 crashes at this point in 2022 
and 107 in 2019. So we're gone way, way above the number of crashes for the last uh, two years. The Justice Minister, Helen McEntee, she was asked to comment on the four deaths yesterday. She said she's absolutely committed to reversing what is now a worrying trend. Um, in, and she said it's, it's become a really worrying time. And she says, she says that it's important that there is continuous visibility and guard the presence on the ground. And she says that's what the focus is going to be between now and the end of the year. And she doesn't just want the visibility and guard the presence to just be on the weekends, because if you think about it, these are all these accidents happened yesterday and it was on a Monday. So she wants it every single day of the week uh, to have more of a guard the presence and more of a guard the focus and visibility out on our roads but she could have a slight problem there because a story that we're running with all morning on the news with uh, Barry is that members of Angarda Siakona are continuing to resign from from the force in increasing numbers so far this year 135 members of Angarda Siakona have uh, quit There was a total of 107 resignations uh, last year. Last month alone, 13 guards resigned. And don't forget, there's also every month a number of guards who come up to retirement age. So last month, what, 13 members decided to resign. 12 had also done their time, so 12 retired. So that was 25 less Gardaí in the force after last month. And the Garda Representative Association, they're saying morale is now at an all-time low in the force. The association says an increasing number of Gardaí are moving on because of this low morale. Others are saying it's to do with unfair treatment and others are citing work-related stress. The GRA President, Brendan O'Connor, says he expects the figures to increase even more by the end of the year. He says we have hit 150 or close to it, members who have decided uh, to give up the day job and resign from the force. And he said that's triple of what would usually resign from the job. So he said looking at it today, it's certainly not an attractive place to uh, work. So if we've more and more Gardaí resigning from uh, the force, I don't know how aware Helen McEntee is going to get the Gardaí from for all of this visibility that she wants on the roads. And by having more continuous visibility and Garda presence on the ground, will it lead to less road uh, accidents? Are there, what are the solutions? How do we stop the this dreadful carnage on our roads and the loss of so many young uh, lives in particular. 0818 103 103. Your thoughts welcomed this morning. You can text or WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. Uh, when I was talking about the number of road uh, deaths and uh, we're now up to 165 so far this year. It's just such uh, a worry and the Justice Minister Helen McEntee is uh, committed to doing something about it and she uh, reckons that it is really important that we have a continuous visibility and guard the presence on the ground and she thinks that that will help and that's what her focus is going to be between now and the end of the year. Uh, one texter saying yes, Helen McEntee is absolutely right because speed uh, kills. If you've got more of a guard the presence out on the road people will slow down and somebody else agreeing with that saying speed kills but also is pointing to the fact that some cars today are uh, only like biscuit tins 
according to this uh, listener. There's no protection in them. So when they crash, uh, they are, people are going to get much more seriously injured and are uh, killed. 0818103103. And can I just go back to yesterday for a moment? Remember there was a listener contacted us who was having a bit of a clean out in the house. Um, closed. She was dropping off to a local charity shop but she was wondering about baby items that she has and baby toys and things and wondering you know, what can she do with it? She doesn't want to just send it to landfill. Well just before the close of the programme and I didn't get a chance to mention it Sheila contacted us from the city to see to say that there is a group called Community Connect and they support pregnant and new mothers who are struggling with the essentials and she said their website is communityconnect.ie and she said they have people in Cork and in the towns around the uh, country and the county and that might be a suggestion for our listener that if she contacts uh, Community Connect she'd be able to drop off the items and they would be able to uh, pass it on and Community Connect was a group I hadn't heard about so it did a bit of research on them yesterday afternoon and yes um, Sheila is correct they are a registered charity here in Ireland who support pregnant women and new parents but they do it in a very practical and a tangible way. They operate as a practical support hub where parents in need can access items like pre-loved clothes, nappies and wipes, blankets and baby towels, pre-loved buggies, cots, all of the practical aids and anything that you think you might need for a newborn uh, baby. They Community Connect, they have five hubs around the country where people can donate the baby items and then where parents in need can access them and one of those hubs is with us here in Cork but they also have volunteers dotted all around the country so volunteers can access items from the hubs and then assist families in need in their locations uh, as well so it sounds like a wonderful wonderful uh, charity and we mention it because if there's any uh, body with a young baby who will know the amount of items that you get I think particularly when it's a first child the amount of clothes and bits and bobs and toys and other essentials and you don't get to use all of them and you may be in your house at the moment with a lot of items that you could send on to this charity so if so you can contact communityconnect.ie that they have a really good website both for people who'd like to donate uh, baby items or anything that can help out a young mother are if you are a young woman or new parents in need of practical and uh, tangible help then please contact communityconnect.ie and our thanks to Sheila for alerting us to them yesterday 0818 103 103 Bernie is taking your calls you can text or WhatsApp to 0862 103 103 Email Patricia now with your story or comment Cork today at c103.ie Cork today on C103 One in every seven children in Ireland faces poverty That's according to the latest report from Social Justice Ireland To discuss their Poverty Focus 2023 report I'm joined by Suzanne Rogers of uh, Social Justice Ireland Good morning to you Suzanne Good morning, Patricia. How are you? It's always a pleasure to chat to you. Well, always great to talk to you as well. Now, the number of children in poverty, it has fallen. Um, But the figure simply remains too high. It's gone from one in five to one in seven. But one in seven, Suzanne, that figure is just too high, isn't it? It really is. And I think especially when every other conversation, so every other headline is we are a country at full employment. We are a country that had a budget where we were talking about having a budget surplus. 
So if they don't make sense to sit side by side like that, where we are a country talking about um, how much money we have and what a success we are, and yet all of these children are living in households in poverty. They are going without. They are being left behind. So it doesn't sit well. It really doesn't. How, how do you define living in poverty? Right, okay. <laughs> I mean, people can argue this, um, but the CSO Silk survey is what we use. That's the survey on income and living conditions. And the agreed line is 60% of median income. Okay. So that's, that's where we sit. Now, at the moment, um, that would be €301 Euro a week for one adult. Now, if we sort of forward that a little bit, so for 2023, according to Social Justice Ireland's calculations, it would be about €318. Euro. But straight away, immediately, what that tells you is that anybody who's reliant on social welfare for their primary source of income is automatically going to be living in poverty because all of the payments are less than the 301 or the 318 um, a week that's required to, to move you out of poverty. So pensioners, anybody living with an illness or a disability or caring, anybody who's um, in lone parents, um, it's difficult to work full time and, and raise children, um, even as part of a two or three adult household, never mind as a lone adult household, especially when you factor in costs like childcare. So immediately you can see where, where we have the problem. So yeah, that's and, and I have to say, every, every weekend when I go out to do uh, my big shop, um, and we're noticing everything is going up and up and up. And when you get to the till and you, you finally pay, mm. it strikes me how are people on a fixed budget surviving, particularly, and I always think of families uh, with children. I don't think they are. Um, it's as simple as that. So no matter how you come at it, uh, an adult at the moment gets €220 Euro a week and that has to put the roof over their head. So that would have to pay their local authority rent, that has to pay their food, their heat, their light, top up your mobile phone, get a haircut, buy a pair of shoes, put your bin tag, your TV licence. I mean, it, it's it's actually impossible. Like we talk about making choices or we talk about making decisions, but you you don't have any choices when you're trying to get by on that. It's it is genuinely impossible. And when you look at, say, things like the Messel, the Vincentian Partnership, they do what's called a minimum essential standard of living basket. They actually go out and price a basket of goods that has been agreed upon that we would consider to be the minimum that anybody needs to get by. And again, social welfare comes nowhere near it. But you are, you're having to make a decision between um, two priority goods when you're down to the wire like that. So it really is, it's that cliched heating or eating, but that's the sort of decisions that people are having to make. It's, it's, and again, in a country where we have money, um, it doesn't make sense. So it's down to the decisions that we make as a country, who we value as a country, where we place our resources. So you would hope that if maybe we make different decisions, we would eventually end up with different outcomes. Yeah, and we've got children living in those uh, in those households and I assume, Suzanne, that those kids, they know they're living in poverty. They know that the other children in their classroom have more than they have. Of course they do. I mean, if you think back, I would imagine yourself, myself, anybody listening here, when you think back to the to who you are as an adult, like that's really formed by key things that happened to you when you were a kid. You know, if we chat through, it'll be like, well, yeah, there was that Christmas or there was that birthday. Um, you know, so we're not we're not stupid as kids. We definitely pick up on 
tensions in the household. I mean, I would have been brought up in a, you know, thankfully a very secure, stable household. But we were in private rented accommodation. And you were aware of that. You were aware that you could be moving, you know, that you, you would be moving at some stage. So you pick up on all of these things. And again, children are... are I suppose because they view the world through a very, very simplistic lens. Um, you know, the, so that's why we would have welcomed, say, things like the free school books and the hot school meals, because they go across the board. It removes the stigma. So it's not what you would have had before is if your mum and dad bought your books, you had your books for day one. If you were waiting for free school books, that could take a week or two. So you were obviously different. Oh, um, God. You know. So you, so stood, out, you stood out in the classroom because you didn't have your books yet. Then everybody yeah. knew you were on the free books. Yeah, yeah. So things like that. Um, so I think, it's, you know, if everybody gets the free books, that'll do away with all of that. Yeah. And even just coming in this morning, I passed a school and little ones now, probably six, seven, eight, all going in with guitars. So obviously, I would imagine that their parents have gone out and bought guitars. Now, even as cheap as Chip's guitar would still set you back quite a considerable sum. So I thought, how brilliant that all of those children are getting a music lesson and that they all can all go home and practice guitars. But I would imagine that there must be children in that class whose parents can't afford even the cheapest thing possible for them. So we do, we really feel it as children, that being that sense of being different or not being good enough. Well, OK, you mentioned budget uh, 2024 and there was huge talk last month in advance of it. It was going to be this great big giveaway uh, budget. What more could have been done, particularly that would have tackled child poverty? I think housing really w- would have been, I mean, obviously social welfare rates, we were looking for an increase in the core social welfare rate. We were looking for an increase, like a, a larger increase than what we got in the qualified child. We were looking for an increase in child benefit. So we did see all of these one-off payments. But again, it's the same thing as the previous year. The taxation measures are baked in permanently. So if you're on a decent income, you will gain over a longer period of time. These social welfare measures were worn off. Again, very welcome. But you burn through them pretty quickly and then you're no better off. You're probably worse off. When you factor in inflation, you're actually worse off probably next year than you were two or three years ago because your euro is worthless. It's buying you less. Um, but I think, I think you know, that again, they did make inroads into childcare. Ideally, I mean, you'd need some sort of a state system because, again, it's really hard to figure out why the costs are so high and that you've got, at the same time, then you've got staff who are striking because they can't afford to keep their businesses open and the the, the pay rates aren't very good. So this over-reliance on the private market to be delivering public or common goods, again, we can see it's not working. So I think housing, um, I think they really missed a trick on housing you could see again where the priorities were. We had this mortgage interest uh, relief system for anybody who was on a tracker or a variable. We had this rent credit for landlords. You know, so you can see again, money is being spent, and we're just looking to see where it's being spent. So I think I think housing, core social welfare rates, and childcare, I think would have gone an enormous way to alleviating the, the, the issues that families have at the moment. Yeah, with missed opportunities. And, uh, you know, I remember many years ago when we would be talking about high unemployment and, you know, the key to get you out of poverty was to get a job. But we have now people who are living in poverty even with a job. 
that's it. I mean, exactly that. Anytime you read about, uh, you know, sort of anti-poverty strategies or how to how to move people out of poverty, it was always, always, always employment. It was always go get a job. And again, I get that pushback as well if I'm talking about, you know, asking the government to increase core social welfare rates. You get this conversation all the time about, why don't you just go get a job? And they're kind yeah. of going, well, I'm sure that's already dawned on them. So I'm sure that there are there's barriers in place. Most of us... Um, you know, get some sort of sense of fulfilment from from work and from the routine and from the structure, even even on the worst days. So there are other barriers in place when it comes to employment. But yeah, you can see if you're working and you're still not able to make ends meet, you still can't buy a treat, you still can't have a little luxury. There's such a conversation there to be had about the quality of jobs that we're providing. Like when we talk about a country at full employment, I don't really know what we mean by that. Um, a minimum wage versus living wage. The fact that the minimum wage for younger people is so low presumes that they're teenagers living at home and that it's pin money. That might not necessarily be the case. So again, guaranteeing hours. So it's one thing to guarantee a decent hourly wage, but if your hours are very erratic and you can't be guaranteed them, that makes paying for childcare almost impossible because you don't know when you're going to be in all of these things so i mean there's a push on across um the eu i think to look at sort of gig workers and platform workers and i think the un rapporteur on poverty has written to you know those big organizations in the u.s again you know in, in kind of calling them out for not paying their staff a decent wage so we can see where the workforce and the workplace was really I suppose, hollowed out over the last 20 or 30 years with these types of jobs. So, again, that's another conversation we really need to have as, yeah. as, a, as a country. The, wor- the, the, the working poor that your own father, Sean Healy, I think was probably one of the first that I ever heard uh, to coin that phrase. And, and now there's so many working poor, unfortunately. And, of course, also when we look at people living on social welfare, there are a group, because of their age, who can't go out and work, and that's uh, pensioners. And, and your report is highlighting there are a, a number of pensioners that continue to live in poverty? Again, you know, it's when we talk about social welfare and that sort of pushback about just go get a job, if you actually look at who, where the bulk of our social welfare goes, it is pensioners, it's people on illness and disability and invalidity, people who can't, for whatever reason, access work or work full time. And I often think as well, like when you're young, if you're asked what you want to be when you grow up, cold and poor are not the two things that come to mind. So it is quite shocking, again, that, you know, as we age, um, you know, that, that the pension isn't really providing. We seem to, again, have this uh, sort of baked-in idea from, from a long time ago that a pension wouldn't need to provide for any, uh, any accommodation costs. But what we're really seeing now is an increasing number of people retiring into the private rent sector or who have mortgages after the age of 65 and 70. So the pension isn't really taking into account any of that, but it's exactly that. You go around the supermarket, you put your few bits in your basket, and it's 15 or 20 quid higher than it was a month ago. Um, You either put stuff back on the shelf or you cut back on something else. And I'm always fascinated as well, I suppose, by how things are joined up. We've had all these conversations about a health overspend. I don't know how we tackle the health unless we really look at issues of frailty and especially amongst older people. I was at a conference maybe two years ago and somebody who came from nursing was saying that's what they're seeing. They're seeing older people just presenting with frailty and that would be linked with keeping your home adequately heated and being able to eat well and look after yourself well. That's, you know, to me it's a bit like 
pay the pay people you know their pensions so that they can do these things and you must save 10 times that in the health budget surely yeah, you know yeah. it's that lack of joined up thinking yeah. I think which uh, and it's right. shameful the way we look after some of our most uh, vulnerable. Uh, Suzanne, listen, it's always a pleasure. You do fantastic work at Social Justice Ireland. Continue to do it. And uh, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you so much. Good morning to you. Bye-bye. That is uh, Suzanne uh, Rogers. And Suzanne is a research and policy analysis with uh, Social Justice uh, Ireland. 0818 103 103. Bernie's taking the cause. You can text her WhatsApp 0862 103 103. Ireland's largest dog welfare charity has received a record 3,500 surrender requests so far this year. Dogs Trust Ireland say that the figure, which is recorded between January and October, is the highest in a single year since the centre first opened and they first opened back in 2009. To talk about their latest campaign, Save the Next Dog, I'm joined by Karina Fitzsimons, who is PR for Dogs at Trust. Good morning to you, Karina. Good morning, Patricia. Uh, you're, you're welcome to the programme. Okay, firstly, what is the most common reason for people wanting to surrender their dogs? So the most commonly provided reasons are unwanted behaviour, accommodation challenges and owners not having enough time. And then not having enough time really ties into the unwanted behaviours because people may feel they don't have enough time if their dog starts exhibiting a behaviour they don't want them to. And that's when they question, am I the right person for this dog? Am I looking after them properly? And often that can lead people to, to ring us and ask if we can take in their dogs. Uh, and uh, is some of this still a throwback from the, the number of families who decided to take on a puppy during COVID times when everyone was at home during lockdowns? Some of it is. Um, the majority of dogs we are asked to take in are adolescent dogs. So they're between six months and kind of 24 months. Um, and maybe people think when dogs are pups they you know exhibit all the um, unwanted behaviours like play biting and chewing things and all that kind of stuff but what happens with dogs as they reach the adolescent stage is they kind of regress um, and we, we did a study a while back where some owners had said their dogs were behaving like sassy teenagers and I think sometimes people may not realise that is a stage in a dog's development and, and may worry or think that, you know there's something wrong or there's an issue when it's actually part of just a dog growing up and maturing. But what we would appeal to people to do is, if they have any issues whatsoever with their dog, even if they think it's something small, is to speak to a reputable um, dog trainer. We have dog school classes, and we also do one-to-one classes with people as well, where they can chat about these things, because there are behaviours that dogs just don't grow out of unless you address them. And dogs need a lot of work. Um, to become well-behaved and and to act in the way we want them to fit into our families and our society. So it's really important not to let things, you know, fester or become big issues. But if you do the work, that unwanted behaviour will stop? In the majority of cases, yes, especially if you nip it in the bud initially. So if you have a large breed dog, for example, and the dog is jumping up, that's something you need to, to nip in the bud straight away because as much as you don't mind your dog jumping up, if they were to jump up on a smaller person or a person who was afraid of dogs, that could be a big issue for that person. So it's it's 
the effort and the time has to go into creating a well-behaved dog. They don't just arrive and understand what they're supposed to do and, you know, do all the toilet training and, and, you know, play biting and stuff and figure it all out themselves. It's just not how it works. And a lot of effort is required to look after a dog properly. And you mentioned accommodation challenges. That's somebody, I'm assuming, trying to rent a property and the landlord says no pets allowed, is it? Yeah, what we're actually finding is that people are calling us that they have been in a rental accommodation for maybe a number of years or months and then the person who owns the property is either selling it or they're moving, they're having to move on somewhere else and they literally cannot find anywhere that will let them take their dogs with them. And obviously if there's children in the family and they have to go to certain schools or, you know, all that kind of stuff, it puts people in a really untenable situation. Um, and the desperation in, in people's voices when they call us about that situation in particular, it, it's just heartbreaking. I don't think anyone would ever want to be in that situation. Because that's a much-loved pet. I know, I know. Oh, goodness. I know, it's, it's, it's you know, I don't think, it, it even bears thinking about it, to be honest, and it's, it's really unfortunate that we don't have more dog-friendly rental accommodation, but obviously we have an accommodation crisis, rental accommodation crisis, as it is. But, Often people who have dogs can be better tenants because they generally tend to spend longer in properties um, because they have dogs. Mm. So there, we did a, a campaign a few years back called, <clears throat> excuse me, Renting with Rover, and it gives lots of tips for people who are looking to rent properties. I mean, it, it, some of the advice is even to do a dog CV, and I know that might sound a bit outlandish, but if you do a dog CV and get recommendations from your vet or from your trainer, or it, it actually can make people, you know, look at things differently. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there is a lot of things that you can try and do. And some of the rental accommodation um, platforms do have the facility to be able to check. But in the majority of cases, it's really just having a chat with the landlord if you can get in touch with them and just, you know, basically asking if, if they could change their mind. But it, it's a lot of pressure for, for people to be under. And then obviously the people ring us and... <clears throat> We can hear the desperation in their voices and obviously that takes a toll on our team as well because we want to help as many dogs as humanly possible. But unfortunately, we just don't have the resources to help all the dogs that need us at the moment. And it's not just Dogs Trust, it's every organisation that deals with dogs around the country, be it dog pounds, welfare, shelters, everybody is struggling with the volume of calls that they're getting and everyone wants to help where at all possible. So if anybody is listening and they want to learn more about what's happening, it's dogstrust.ie forward slash crisis. Okay, and then obviously I've, I've just, um, you'd be unaware of this, I've just been talking about children living in poverty in this country with Social Justice Ireland and we were talking about the whole cost of living crisis mm. that's going on at the moment and people, you know, trying to make ends meet and living from uh, week to week. Yeah. If people are struggling, I'm, I'm assuming there are some families as well can't afford to keep we would we suspect that could be the case but we haven't got the evidence to back that up because only 19 people out of all the thousands of people who've contacted us stated financial reasons now that could be a um a personal choice because they don't feel comfortable telling us that information okay so we we personally haven't had that information but i would suspect so because everything has increased inflation has gone up across the board be it dog food human food, everything has. So it would only make sense and it would be natural that that may be the case. And we have seen as well the volume of dogs that are coming into us with serious veterinary issues and they're quite expensive and in a lot of the cases, had they been treated initially, 
they would have been able to have been treated quite inexpensively. So that would suggest that people maybe can't afford veterinary treatment at the moment. And Karina, are you still getting dogs who are just simply abandoned? Yeah, we had a really upsetting case um, of Minnie and Tiny. They're two little 11-year-old Jack Russells and they were actually thrown from a moving car in Dublin. And when we took them in, they went to the Irish Blue Cross first for a week and then they came to us and they had like lots of teeth needed to be removed. They had old scars um, and they had heart conditions, skin conditions. So we suspect in that case that it may have been because of their veterinary issues that they were discarded. But there's just no justification for, for throwing dogs out of the car, none whatsoever. Um, and and, and Jack Russells, they have such a bond with their owners. Yeah, they're such cute, loving little dogs. Now, thankfully, Minnie and Tiny actually got a home together. So they, they both got adopted together, which we were so happy about because they were really a bonded little pair. They rely on each other. But we also sadly had a litter of Springer puppies, um, seven of them, which we named after the seven dwarfs. <laughs> um, I know we, we had to give them funny names because the condition they were in was so bad that we want we needed to, you know, kind of try and um, lighten things a little for our staff and they had a condition called sarcoptic mange and that's like little mites that burrow into the skin and it causes hair loss and severe itching. Now obviously for dogs when they're itchy they're going to scratch even if it hurts. So these poor little guys had secondary bacterial infections because they were scratching so much they were causing cuts on their skin and that got affected. So they and the sarcoptic mange is also contagious to humans. So um it was, they were quite sad poor little pups when they arrived but thankfully with veterinary treatment we were able to get them all homes as well. well done. But again, with that specific condition, that can be nipped in the bud quite easily and quite inexpensively when it first arises. Okay, so you're appealing to people um, to help you out financially in order to continue the work, Karina, that, you, that you're doing with this uh, n- uh, new campaign. Tell us about the campaign. So the campaign is called Save the Next Dog and we have a TV ad which will be appearing on your screens over the next week or so. And it's basically shown that Dogs Trust, like many other organisations, we have to make impossible choices because we just don't have the resources to help every dog. And as you mentioned, with the cost of living, it's getting harder and harder to continue to do that. So we're appealing to the public to support us. And you can find out all about the campaign. It's dogstrust.ie forward slash crisis. And just on the rehoming of dogs, and we're always encouraging people, if you are going to get a dog, to please go to somebody like Dogs Trust or any of the other reputable charities. Lister wants to know, why do you insist when you're rehoming dogs that the dog must be kept indoors at night? The majority of the dogs who come into our care come from local authority dog pens. And we don't know what start in life they've had. Judging by a lot of the behaviours the dogs show when they first arrive, how timid and scared they are, we would believe that they haven't had the best start in life. And when they stay with us, our kennels have the option of an indoor section and an outdoor section, and it's separated by a dog flap. And the inside has underfloor heating, and it would be very, very rare that a dog would choose to, to be outside. So because the dogs feel safe and secure in the environment that we created them when they first arrive, and we give them that choice, we then would recommend that when the dog goes, they're part of the family um, and that's why, you know, they they be adopted to live within a home. Now, that's not to say the dog is never to go outside. Yeah. And obviously there are some dogs who would prefer to go outside. Some huskies, for example, especially during the summer, think I am not sleeping inside with all this fur. I would prefer <laughs> to be outdoors. Yeah. So it's more about the individual case. It's not... Uh, 
it's not set in stone. Okay. Okay. And the annual reminder, I suppose, Karina, as well, is that a dog is not just for Christmas. Please, please, please avoid giving pets any kind of pets as Christmas presents. Yeah, we 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 beg people not to gift um, any type of pet because you just don't know the, the person who's receiving it, whether they, they want that pet or not. And then they may keep a dog who's not suitable for them out of guilt until that dog is maybe a year old and then have to surrender the dog. And we don't want to see anyone in that position. And also, there's so many reputable breeders out there that if people are going to buy a dog, the reputable breeders probably wouldn't have dogs available around this time of year. Yeah, and and don't forget uh, dogs. Uh, Trust Ireland, you still have a number of dogs. I, I'm assuming you've still got loads of dogs looking oh, for a new home. Oh, we've over 200 dogs looking for homes. Yeah, we've rehomed 861 dogs so far this year and we've taken in 1,049 dogs so far. So it's just a continuing cycle of as soon as a dog gets a home, we have a list of dogs waiting to come in from pounds all around the country. That's incredible. Listen, uh, Karina, you do amazing uh, work at uh, Dogs Trust. Good luck with your latest campaign, Save the Next Dog. And thanks a million for taking time out uh, to talk to us today. Thank you so much. Pleasure as always. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is uh, Karina Fitzsimons of uh, Dogs uh, Trust Ireland. 0818103103. Bernie's taking the calls. You can text her WhatsApp to 0862. 103-103. Now, the oncology department at the South Infirmary Victoria University Hospital has been on uh, asking if we'd give a shout out to an information day. It's an information day for Nick head and neck cancer patients and their carers and it's taking place this coming Saturday at the Maryborough House, uh, the Maryborough Hotel in Douglas and it's on from 10am until 12.30 and refreshments will be served. So if you are a head and neck cancer patient or you are a carer of a patient, feel free to pop along to the Maryborough Hotel in Douglas this Saturday morning, 10am to 12.30. And then Paul in Skull has been on to us and he is looking for a Suggestions, please, for restaurants in West Cork that will be open on Christmas Eve. He likes on the evening of Christmas Eve to invite fr- family to go for uh, for dinner. So not daytime, we're talking about evening into nighttime on Christmas Eve. I know a lot of restaurants will open on Christmas Eve. Don't know how many open in the evening, though, nighttime. A lot of them, I think, have probably have a tendency to close up so that they can give their staff a bit of a break. But maybe there are restaurants that are opening in the evening time of Christmas Eve. Any suggestions, please, Paul, is. Uh, currently in the Skull area. Uh, Bernie is taking your recommendations. 0818 103 103. Now looking at some of your commentary coming in on some of the issues we've been discussing. I start the programme by talking about um, the very depressing and sad news of further road deaths. Four people killed on our roads yesterday, including those two 18-year-olds in Donegal, you know, with their entire lives ahead of them. And you can imagine what their families are going through and will go through the next few days as they're organising their funerals. And and then life will never be the same again for any of those uh, families. But what's really worrying is the amount of people that have been killed on our roads this year. It looks like we're going to set some kind of a new record, I think, when it comes to the amount of road deaths. And we've been we've been doing so well in recent years. You know, at the end of every year, we talk about the road deaths. And of course, one road death is one uh, too many. But there's always 
Road Safety Authority, you know, will release the figures and there's always a sense we're heading in the right direction. And certainly in 2019, we seemed to be heading in the right direction. But we're just, we're just gone the other way. And, and we, I was talking about it this morning, saying, you know, what needs to be done? And uh, the Justice Minister, Helen uh, McEntee, is absolutely committed, she said, to reversing what she says is a worrying uh, trend. And uh, she's been worried about it for quite some time. And one of the things she said, her focus between now and the end of the year is to make sure that there is a presence and there is a visibility of Gardaí irrespective of what day of the week it is. So not just having them out and about on the weekends, she wants them out every day of the week because bearing in mind we saw four people killed yesterday and yesterday was a a Monday. Some of your thoughts on that. Eddie in Mahan said speed uh, kills but people found using mobile phones while driving. They should have their phones instantly taken away from them. That would solve a lot of problems as phones today are very expensive uh, items. So how would people feel about that if if they brought in a rule rather than a penalty or, you know, penalty points or a fine, the actual mob- the, the mobile phone, because some of those phones can be a thousand euro uh, plus, that it gets confiscated and you don't get it back if you're actually caught driving while on your mobile uh, phone. That's a suggestion in from Eddie. Martin in from Oi says no amount of Gardaí will prevent car crashes. He said they could have a million Gardaí in every county in Ireland, but it will not stop crashes and deaths. It's speed on our roads, Patricia, says Martin. Every one of us needs to slow down. But I suppose the argument from Helen McEntee about having this guard, the visibility in this guard, the presence, people do slow down if they know that there is a speed van up ahead, if they know that there's a guard that out, you know, clocking people's uh, speed. So, um, yes, absolutely. Speed kills. And one way to reduce speed is to have a greater Garda uh, presence. And then Michael has a suggestion that he wants to put out. And I don't know how many people are going to agree with Michael on this one. He says, I understand the difficulties that Minister McEntee and indeed any other justice minister has with today's world and the workings of justice, especially when it comes to members of Angarda Shia Kona. They have to only look crooked at somebody and there'll be a complaint made against them. No, not my Mary, not my Johnny attitude. In today's world's fines and jail time really is of no use. Any monetary penalty is only a joke. They're only laughing at the system. That doesn't hurt any longer. You have to have a deterrent and the only deterrent that has been feared is, I'm afraid to say, the cat of nine tails. So bring back corporal punishment. Seriously, it's on record that it's never seen the rear end twice. I know people are going to be jumping up and down about cruelty, etc. But his presence alone is a master. Thanking you. And that's from uh, Michael. Would others agree with Michael that for certain, I don't know what particular crimes Michael is talking about, but he's suggesting that we bring back a form of corporal punishment, not a death penalty, but bring back the cat of nine tails so that somebody would receive, uh, you know, a lashing instead of being asked to pay a fine. Would people be with Michael on this or would you be absolutely against it and say that is not the way we want this country to go? Your thoughts welcomed. Uh, 0818103103. I'm back on our roads and what's happening on our roads. Listener says, I just drove from Clonakilty to Bandon. There are lunatics driving on the road, uh, particularly around Peddler's Cross, overtaking on a continuous white line, dangerous speeding.
building. And then just at the entrance to Bandon Town, at the 30 kilometre per hour sign, two Gardaí are stopping traffic in both directions and they're checking for tax and insurance. Surely a waste of Garda time and a silly allocation of resources. Those two members of Garda Shikona, would they surely not be more effective detecting stupid drivers and drivers overtaking on a continuous white line and speeding? Would they not be better out on our open roads? That's interesting because only, the, I was off last week, the week before we were talking about Garda checkpoints and people were saying how they don't see uh, as many Garda checkpoints. And I was making the point that I can't remember how many years ago it was since I was stopped for tax and uh, insurance. So maybe they're back out again checking for tax and, and insurance but is it as this texture says is, is it a silly allocation of resources would the Gardaí be better off hidden inside in bushes trying to catch people speeding or to try to as that le- listener witnessed people overtaking on continuous white lines 0818 103 103 your thoughts welcomed and then on dogs when we were talking with Dogs Trust in the last hour and the number of dogs that have been surrendered are people looking to surrender the dogs the problem is there are so many people looking to surrender dogs that Dogs Trust and some of the other uh, dog charities are simply not able to take them so they've got to try and ask the person trying to surrender the dog if they can hold on to them and there's just a waiting list now to get into these dog uh, charities Um, and there's a whole host of different reasons why people are surrendering uh, dogs but one of them um, certainly has to do with the cost of living and people can't afford to keep their dogs but then the other heartbreaking one is somebody who's in a rental property with a much loved dog and moving on to another rental property and can't find a rental property that will accept any kind of pets and that must be utterly heartbreaking that you have to surrender your much loved pet because you can't bring the pet uh, with you. Somebody says Patricia I would never ever ever give up on my fur babies. Would you give up a child says this texter and I rescue by the way I never buy says this uh, texter who's got uh, much loved fur uh, babies. And then James in Bantry who is a dog lover says he had a German Shepherd, had the German Shepherd for 11 years, but unfortunately, much love pet had to be uh, put down. He was in contact with Dogs Trust because he wanted to rescue another German Shepherd, but he said they wouldn't give him the dog as he wouldn't agree to keeping the dog in the house at night. He said he has an enclosed yard, a big shed and a doghouse and a run for the dog. They're big dogs, German Shepherds, and he feels they're too big to keep indoors. Maybe their rules are a little too strict. Well, I did not directly your comment but I did if you were listening to my interview Corinne I did put that issue in because we do hear that um, sometimes when people go to rescue a dog and because they won't have the dog in the house and she did explain that it's not a hard and a fast rule they do in the majority of cases like if they are giving a dog to a new home that the dog will remain indoors at uh, night but she said it isn't hard and fast and I wonder did you explain to them you know you do sound like you've got a perfect area uh, for the dog and I'm assuming it's just a night you'll be putting the dog into that area that during the day would the dog be in the house because I know and I think you know when Karina spoke about some of the conditions that these dogs come from and they want them to get the best uh, forever home and you know she says you know that it's a known fact that most dogs prefer to be indoors at night uh, rather than outside where you know it might it mightn't be as warm even though as you say you do have a, a big uh, shed but you know on a cold chilly night how warm would that big shed uh, be uh, 0818 103 103 Bernie's taking your calls you can text our WhatsApp to 0862 
103 103. C103 Jobs. Full-time healthcare assistants are wanted for Maria Goretti Nursing Home. Now, that's based in Kilmallock. Please apply with your CV to admin at mgnh.ie. Hallisey and Partners solicitors based in Bandon are looking for a legal secretary. You need to have a minimum of one year experience. You can email, you can email your CV to info at hplaw.ie or you can pop it in the post to their office at 41 South Main Street in Bandon. Ingredient Solutions in Boherbury, they're looking for a finance administrator and a customer service representative. Email your up-to-date CV to esther at ingredientsolutions.net and please note the closing date for applications is the 30th of uh, November. And HGV drivers are wanted for the Cork area. Call 086 You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Simply go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Cork Today on C103. There's a lot of calls and comments coming in and I will get back to them, but I want to move to a different issue because in planning for the Commission on Care that was recently announced by the government, Sage Advocacy have released the results of a Red Sea poll that set out to gauge public opinion on issues relating to support and care for older people. Mervyn Taylor is CEO of Sage Advocacy, which is, of course, the National Advocacy Service for Older People. And I'm delighted to say Mervyn joins me this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Patricia. You're you're, you're welcome. Now, based on this survey, who do people feel should be paying for the care of our older people? Well, there's simply mixed results uh, on this one, Patricia. Um, It's not unusual for people to say, um, you know, the state should pay for everything. So, I mean, the first thing is that people are the largest group, 44%, say uh, care for uh, older people should be free of charge and paid for fully from the public purse. But then there's co-payments, 25%, and co-payments for particular periods of time, 19%. It's... There's something common here. This comes up with a lot of, of issues uh, about how things should be funded. Um, I would think it's probably the least interesting part of our survey. What we found was that a lot of people actually wanted more control and wanted actually to be able to employ. Like it was very interesting that 61% of uh, said that older people should be able to directly employ care workers and 58% said that they should be uh, allocated personal individualised budgets. Uh, and that speaks to a kind of a desire to kind of uh, a more personalised, individualised approach. And indeed, interestingly, in a, um, it's always said that uh, people are shy of uh, online uh, platforms. Um, 70% of people said there should be publicly funded online platforms to support people hiring care um, personnel. And that's, I, th- I think that's, that's a really important message for the Commission on Care because it's what it's saying is like, um, we want more than nursing home uh, support scheme. We want a greater range of supports to be available for us. And there was very, very strong support for issues such as um, 
81% said the government should provide an innovation fund to provide to promote small-scale household models of congregated care as an alternative to larger nursing homes. Now, that's really interesting because the expert group on nursing homes uh, that reported during the pandemic uh, a couple of years ago actually talked about the need for to develop newer models of, of care and smaller So, so what, what you, like little retirement villages, which we see in other countries? Well, it's, I think, the thing is not just about retirement villages. There, there are a wider range of options needed. The problem in Ireland is that we have... Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Very, you've got either total care in a congregated care setting like a nursing home or you've got very little care in a, in a community in your mm. own home. And the Commission on Care, we believe, needs to look at what the issues that we've highlighted in this Red Sea poll, which the public are saying they believe home care and nursing home care has become overly concentrated in the hands of private providers. That's 82%. And uh, it was very substantial. Almost over three quarters of people supported the idea of a national not-for-profit organisation such as the GAA for Care to help meet the challenges of an ageing society and economy. Yeah, so I explain, explain that uh, to people, that concept sure. of the, uh, the GAA for care. Yeah, I mean, we used it as a general sort of, we couldn't think of a better yeah, title. I think it's an excellent title. <laughs> um, and everybody seems to understand it when we say it, but we're, we're a bit wary of, of, of trying it out on people, Patricia. But, I mean, what it would be, it would be a national not-for-profit organisation um, which would actually um, draw in a kind of uh, almost a unique Irish social institution. Like we have a GAA which is involved in sport, but it is also an incredibly vital part of our overall social infrastructure, if you can use that term. Mm -hmm. Um, It's admired internationally. It has a presence in every community. It's very professional, but it involves uh, amateurs. Um, And it is... certainly brings great loyalty to the to the local areas, but also to the county and nationally. And it's that kind of spirit 
that we're trying to get at of a it's like a social business or a social enterprise GA for care we're just calling it for shorthand the idea would be that we try and develop a unique national institution um, which could um, link a lot of the really great efforts from the Carebrights in Brough and, and, and in and Limerick uh, up to you know Jerry Crowley and Mulrani I mean there's some great examples there's Respond Intergenerational uh, housing in Cork. There are some very good examples of what the future can be for older people, but the state has not yet really got behind a, an overarching vision. And we feel that the, this Commission on Care needs to develop such a vision. And it also has to look at how we're going to pay for this uh, wider range of, of supports and care. And, and were you surprised to see that the great majority of people believe that the private providers predominate the care sector? Did that come as a surprise? Not at all. No. Not at all. Um, I mean, you will see on the front page of today's Irish Times, and I haven't seen all the other papers, um, major concerns about a particular nursing home group uh, in, in financial difficulties. Yeah, and we've had um, we, some of those nursing homes were here with us in in Cork, and uh, I'm very conscious yeah. there would be people listening who had who had loved ones uh, there um, yeah, uh, uh, as well. Um, and and the personal budgets. I'm I'm really interested in this because I've seen these personal budgets in work extremely well in the disability sector in in Australia. And the personal budgets are the older person would directly employ the care workers. That's how it would work, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there you're you're right. Uh, and if you've seen it working well, uh, you've seen it working very well. I mean, it's an idea which has been around, as you say, in the disability sector, but. Not all older people want to directly employ uh, a person, but some do. Mm. And this is to provide, uh, if you like, you're the person who decides who you want to provide your care. You have a a budget allocation. Uh, It could be by voucher scheme or whatever. And that uh, is, you organise that for as long as you want. But then there are other people who say, look, I don't actually want to be in that business, but I would like somebody else to do it for me and that's where we were talking about the online platforms um, and you see the, the support for both is quite quite strong there are existing online platforms and partly what they do is they effectively cut out a lot of the overheads of they take their their share but they take out a lot of the overheads associated with running very large uh, corporate entities and it's more choice that people are, are actually looking for. And I think greater control rather than simply a choice between two schemes, one for home and one for one, one in a nursing home. Yeah, we need to think outside the box. I mean, this is what this is, what this is all about. You asked people about their, uh, about commissioner for older people. Yeah, I mean, like one of the uh, issues that's been put forward over recent years has been like if we had an ombudsman or a commissioner for older people in the public world, that it would um, it might actually help address some of the challenges faced by older people. There was tremendous support for that at eighty one percent. I suppose the question would have to be for the commission in care looking at any issue like that would be how would that commissioner what powers might they have mm. that could actually do um, that existing organisations or statutory agencies 
couldn't do. Um, I mean, you could say that a national adult safeguarding authority, such as being put forward by Safeguarding Ireland, might actually, with the right uh, powers if established, could actually fill that role. But the, I think the main thing is that there's support for the idea of actually somebody who could just tackle uh, very directly some of the challenges faced by older people and, and, and make sure that they're dealt with. OK, a listener is asking your opinion on the funding going forward, making the point with an ageing population, uh, do, do we really need to make sure that there's adequate funding for long-term care and support going forward? No, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the listeners uh, on the on the money, <laughs> pardon the pun. Uh, this is one of the, the reasons why the Commission uh, on Care is so important, Um but we first of all just need to decide, and the commission. This is why we commissioned this Red Sea poll. Was we've been listening to a lot of issues over the years, and we feel that the need to sort of, in some way, help broaden the agenda for this commission on care. To first of all say what are the range of things that people uh, want and need, and then tackle the issue of how they're going to be paid for. I have my personal sense is that we will end up with some form of system of co-payments such as we have with nursing home support scheme at the moment but and that would be for a wider range of uh, supports in in the home um i think most uh countries have some form of co-payment system but um really that's for the commission i mean like in the end of the day we could move towards uh social insurance models which is used in 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 other countries um but the commission has to do the detailed work, and there's a, there's a there's a little bit of head wrecking uh, study to be done on, on this whole issue. Yeah, and and then you know finally, I think when you, when you you talk to older people about what type of care that they would like, you know, the majority say they want to be looked after at home, they want care in the in the community. We need to make sure that that's you know that that is available for older people. Yeah, I mean, one of the big things at the moment, and, and there's a lot of controversy at the moment, but delayed trade transfers of care, uh, and there's a fear that people will be sort of, somebody used a phrase the other day, of, of warehousing people in nursing homes. Yeah. But the issue is, is like we, we need to have more people available uh, to provide home care uh, if we want, if we're saying, look, we want to prevent people going into congregated care settings where possible. Um, the, there's how well or how poorly people are paid for home care, but there's also the models may need to change. I mean, there's there's regulatory uh, approaches being developed by government at the moment, um, and presumably HICWA will oversee that. But what the regulator isn't going to be looking at is what what are the wage rates. Um, and I think my 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 sense is that the system of pe- people being encouraged to hire their own uh, carers uh, locally and, you know, find micro-solutions. That's very often very useful. Equally, being able to hire people through online arrangements where the other person is vetted, et cetera, et cetera. Anything that will increase the the, the, the pay to the care provider, uh, the, the carer, mm. and that decreases um, sort of unnecessary, uh, like... like um, scooping out of profits uh, to companies has to be welcomed. And I think it's somewhere in those in that sort of area that we've got to put our efforts. Let's get more people 
uh, into the home care sector um, based on the fact that they're employed uh, on better terms. Okay, well done. Well done. It's a great poll. Uh, and do, are you passing that on to the Commission on Care, the results of your poll? Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. I mean, well, mind you, we, we, we have, they have yet to be established, so yeah. we'll be passing it on to them. When, when they are when established. We, when they've established, it'll probably be in, uh, we'll hear more about it in uh, January, February the of, of, of the new year. Okay, no doubt. We'll talk about this again, Marvin. In the meantime, thank you for that and thanks, thanks for joining indeed, us. Good Appreciate morning it. to you. Bye bye. Bye bye. That is uh, Marvin Taylor, CEO of Sage Advocacy, who advocates on behalf of older people. 0818103103. Bernie's taking your calls. You can text or WhatsApp to 0862 103103. Court today on C103. Now it's that time of year again to dig out an old shoebox, fill it up with essentials and treats for children's children overseas who are less fortunate than ours. To discuss this year's Team Hope. Christmas shoebox appeal. I'm joined by Jonathan Douglas, who is the appeal manager. Good morning to you, Jonathan. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on Well, today. you're very welcome. How many countries do you endeavour to send these shoeboxes to? So we're hoping to get them to 12 countries this year. What are the main countries that you send them to? Uh, let's name it. We've got Ukraine, Transnistria, Albania, Romania. We'd have Burundi, Burkina Faso, Eswatini, Lesotho, uh, but 12 in total. OK, will Ukraine be difficult for you this year? Say that again, sorry? Will Ukraine be difficult... Oh, you- uh, well, we, we are we are hoping to like we've been gotten managed to get them there for the last two years, uh, so we are as always hopeful to get them in again this year. So we are uh, ongoing efforts, but like yeah, we are we're very hopeful as always to get them in. Okay, now for those who've never done this before, Jonathan, can you outline what you ask people to do? Sorry, could you repeat that? Sorry, I said for those who've never done one, made up one of these shoe boxes before, can you outline what you ask people oh, to cool. do? Of course, absolutely. Yes. So what people do is you get an empty shoebox, you wrap it in Christmas paper, and then you put it. You put in what's called the four W's. So that's something to write with, something to wash with, something to wear, and something to make them go wow. So for some examples might be you could put in some coloring pencils or a copybook. Um, you could put in uh, maybe a little tennis ball, a little teddy bear, or maybe a little bag of sweets. You could put in some toothbrush, toothpaste, or even a little bar of soap, or some, a hat or gloves or scarf. Those would be some great items to put in. Are there some items that you should not include? Yes. So uh, we don't. Uh, we recommend don't put in any liquids because they could freeze and then crack and then damage the contents of the shoe boxes. Don't put in any kind of chocolate that can melt and then also damage the box. And of course, nothing dangerous, nothing sharp, or nothing scary. Of course. Yeah, and I remember a few years ago, one one of the words of advice was, you know, don't put in a toy gun, which might be something you'd give to a little boy here in Ireland, but you've got to be aware of some of the countries that these children will be receiving them. Exactly, exactly. Um, but if ever, if ever in doubt, not to fear, like we have uh, volunteer teams across the country that check each shoebox to make sure that they are safe and suitable. But yes, nothing, of course, nothing dangerous, nothing that, uh, yes, for when people are making a box, just have a second think, am I, what I'm pushing in my box, is it suitable, is it friendly? And you get to choose the age group of the child that you want to fill your shoebox for. Isn't that the case? That's right, yes. So there's three age groups to choose from. There's two to four, five to nine, and ten to fourteen. And we tend to get lots of the five to nine, which is great, but we're always looking for more of the two to four or ten to fourteen year age range. 
Yeah, particularly that older, the 10 to 14 one might be the trickier one to fill, but those children are deserving of a, a shoebox as much as the, the smallies are. Now, the deadline is uh, this Friday. And then, Jonathan, your real work begins because you mentioned every single box has to be checked, doesn't it? That's right. So we have 50 teams across the country. We've got volunteer teams in every county that are collecting the shoeboxes and are checking them. So we have thousands of volunteers checking tens of thousands of shoeboxes and they've done it every year since 2010 for Team Hope and they're just phenomenal people. And you ask people to donate five euro, that's towards the transportation, is it? That's right. So everything that's involved uh, from the moment uh, someone makes a shoebox to the moment it gets into the hands of a child in uh, one of our partnering countries, the donation goes towards getting that shoebox to that child. And people, for, for some that they mightn't have the time to fill one of these uh, shoeboxes, people can, can do a virtual shoebox online. That's right. If you go to the website teamhope.ie, you have two options. You can just give a straight donation of €20 euro, and then your shoebox will be made overseas by one of our partners. Or you can actually personalise your own shoebox. We have a fun Build-A-Box feature where you can actually put in those four Ws I mentioned and our partners will try and replicate that box in their own country. Okay, and I was looking on your website yesterday for drop-off points. I think practically every every area of the city and every town in the county has somewhere where you can drop off a shoebox. Yes, that's what we, we, we aim to try and get at least uh, one drop-off point in, in each area or each kind of major area. So I know for Cork, there is, um, of course, any deals, uh, Toymaster or First Stop will accept them. But we have five checking centre teams and uh, lots of drop-off points. So if you just go to our website, teamhope.ie, you'll be able to find our full list there. And I always love, um, Jonathan, when children get involved, if you can get parents to get children involved with filling a shoebox, particularly a shoebox maybe for a child of their own uh, age. Are are you still collecting shoeboxes in a lot of the schools? Does that still happen? Yes, yeah, so this week in particular, of course, a lot of schools have now come back from half term. So this is a big week uh, for shoebox collections from schools as well and a little bit into next week as well. So, yes, this is a, one of the busiest times of the year. OK, listen, good luck with it. And it's teamhope.ie where people can get further details. But the cutoff date for delivering and getting the shoeboxes in so that Jonathan and his volunteers can individually check every box is this coming Friday. Good luck with it as always, Jonathan, and thank you for that. Thank you so much and thank you everyone for your support. Thanks for joining us. That is Jonathan uh, Douglas, who is the appeal manager for the 2023 Christmas uh, Shoebox Appeal. And many years ago, I remember being in an orphanage in Belarus and seeing uh, the little girl's uh, dormitory. Uh, A number of them had one of these shoeboxes. You could clearly see that it was the Christmas Shoebox Appeal because, you know, it was a shoebox covered in Christmas wrapping paper. Nothing left in the shoebox at this stage, you know, because they I think the boxes have been delivered like five years previously or something, but they still treasured this empty shoebox and they were keeping their bits and bobs uh, inside in it. And I just thought, goodness, you know, to families who had filled one of their shoeboxes, you know, little would they have known that, you know, five years on, the shoebox remained and was very much a part of these orphans' uh, lives and it was their own little uh, shoebox. And as I say, they kept their own personal bits uh, inside in it. So if you can fill a shoebox, please uh, do. and the cut-off point November the 10th. 0818 103 103. 
Bernie's taking your calls. You can text her WhatsApp us to 0862-103-103. You know, listeners just popped in a text to us to say, just to let people know, there will be a stop-go system on the R585 Bailnablaw to Crookstown. It'll be at the Bailnablaw end and the stop-go system will be in place for approximately a week and a half. So please factor that in if you will be driving between Bailnablaw and uh, Crookstown. Your journey may be delayed uh, because of that stop and go system for about a week and a half. And then someone was on to us earlier saying, did you get any reports, Trish, on water outages in the Ballyhooley area? I asked Bernie to check in with uh, Ishka Aram. And they tell us that uh, water is out in Ballyhooley. Repairs to a burst water main is causing disruptions to Rahard, Ballyhooley and the surrounding areas. Uh, work is taking place until about four o'clock this afternoon, but they're working on it. They are aware of the burst and they're sorting it out. So if you're in that general Ballyhooley area without water at the moment, but they're working to sort it out for you. 0818 103 103. Bernie continues to take your calls. You can text her WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. Now, some of your thoughts and comments uh, coming into the programme on a host of uh, different issues. Firstly, um, just a quick response from Helen. Oh, this is to the Christmas shoebox appeal that we spoke about in the last uh, hour. Um, and Helen says, hi, Trish. I'm just wondering, are they very strict on the closing date for the shoebox donations of November the 10th, which is this uh, Friday? Also, do you include the fiver in the box? Uh, thanking you. I know when I went online to the Christmas shoebox appeal um, online, they were suggesting that people donate the five euro online. And I know Bernie's already dropped off her shoebox and she did the five euro online, but she said they're also, you can put the five euro in an envelope and put it into the box. That's the way it was always done in a previous year. So I think you've got a choice either or. As to how strict they are with the closing date, I'm not sure. What I would suggest is wherever you're, I, I don't know where Helen is uh, messaging us from, wherever your nearest drop-off point is, maybe check in with that shop to find out what date the uh, their Christmas shoe boxes are being collected because I assume they're not all going to be collected, say, the following day on Saturday. They do need to get them in, though, in mid-November so that they can sort uh, through them all. So just check in, check out with wherever you're donating your boxes and just see what is their uh, final date. Also, if you want to check out, is there any local schools in your area? Many of the local schools, the children themselves are doing shoeboxes and they'd be only too happy to take a shoebox from you as well. And obviously all of those are not going to be collected uh, this uh, Friday. And enjoy filling the box, Helen. It's a, it's a wonderful thing that I do every year and I always get a kind of bit of fun out of it. And you've got a sense of achievement, I think, when you're handing over uh, that little box, knowing that it will go to a child uh, really in need. I mentioned about restaurants for Christmas Eve. I don't know if we've got any restaurant suggestions for Christmas Eve, but Bernard is on um, and he's wondering, are there any hotels open on Christmas Day just for Christmas dinner? He doesn't want to stay in the hotel. He just wants to have Christmas dinner. Now, I know some hotels do that. A lot of hotels, of course, close and you can understand why to give the staff time off. If anybody knows of Christmas dinner served on Christmas Day, don't know what part of the county though Bernard is texting us from and, and obviously when you are sending in texts like that let us know what area you're in because you could be in North Cork and someone could suggest uh, a hotel that's way down in West Cork that would be too far for you to travel so if you want to let us know Bernard what part of the county you're in so that we could get maybe some suggestions in your area and then a number of people were listening to my interview with uh, Mervyn Taylor of Sage Advocacy uh, talking about that um, Research piece of research they did, or poll that they did, just asking people 
what they, how they view care of the elderly in this country and how they would like to see care of the elderly developing in this uh, country. Anne was on to say, Patricia, I looked after my brother-in-law for 15 years. He had Alzheimer's. One day he was quite upset and I asked him what was wrong with him. And he said, I'm afraid that you'll one day put me into a nursing home. I said, I promised I would not. And he was very happy after that. Thank God I was able to look after him right to the end. And uh, he was very happy just when I told him that I wouldn't put him into a nursing home, uh, says Anna. And that is one of the issues we, we covered. I think for the majority of people, they like the idea of being cared for at home or either live independently themselves or just to be cared for at home by loved ones. So well done, Anne, to you. And hi, Patricia. My mother would have spent more time in hospital giving birth to her children than she did when then she did sick throughout her 90 years. Uh, people who invest in their health in later years to prevent in ill health, it's not always in the genes. There are positive actions that we can all help ourselves. There's so much information out there on positive ageing. De- definitely a specialised diet can be a huge help. Or listening to the likes of Annalise Dressel, who joins you every Monday, or get in t- touch with her. Prevention is always better than the cure, says a West Cork listener. And actually that kind of, we touched on that earlier when I spoke with Suzanne Rogers of Social Justice Ireland when she was talking about children in poverty and I touched on the fact that their latest poverty report was was also talking about the other end of the scale, children in poverty, but also older people particularly those who are just living on the state pension. And she was saying that there's evidence there that a lot of frail elderly people end up in hospital. And some of that is down to they're not looking after their health because they can't afford to look after their health. And the knock-on effect of that is is actually costing the state more because those people end up in, in hospital. And if they looked after themselves, they might have needed to spend so much time in hospital. So yes, that was good. Listener, you are right. Positive ageing and a good diet and exercise and looking after yourself certainly does uh, work. 0818103103 and then a number of people commenting on road deaths with that awful figure of four more four more lives lost just uh, yesterday bringing the total number of deaths on our roads to 165 for this year. Anne in Cork says that the Central Statistic Office has evidence that a number of car crashes are single vehicle collisions. Many of those could and were caused by heart attacks or strokes, so it isn't always speed. And, and that's a fair point. Not every accident is down to speed. A proportion of them are, Anne, but yes, you are right to say not every accident can be attributed to speed. And then Catherine in Dunmanway when she heard me mention that the Justice Minister Helen McEntee uh, is committed to reversing this trend of road deaths and one of the things she wants to do is uh, to see the presence and the visibility of Gardaí irrespective of what day of the week or what time of the day it is. She wants more Gardaí out on our roads. Catherine says, more Gardaí on the street or on the road my eye. When you're sending home from Temple Moore trainee Gardaí for having a tattoo you wonder what our minister is thinking of and that happened a couple of months ago where there was two young people who wanted to go forward to members of Gardaí and they had visible tattoos that couldn't be covered by their uniform so they were no longer allowed to take part in the training. So Catherine, back to Catherine's desk. I think Drew Harris and the Minister are so far removed from reality and to make a commitment that we'll have more Gardaí on the roads to keep our roads safer is completely beyond the woman, says Catherine Indermanway, who's obviously not a fan of our current Justice Minister. And then listen to this text. My best friend 
was killed in a road accident when we were both just 12 years of age. She was a cyclist turning off the road towards her own gateway in the most rural part of Ireland. A car charged around the corner and hurtled into her. She later died in hospital. I think of her every day and her mum said to me recently that the pain has never faded. Drivers must take care of their actions because they can and do destroy so many lives. Yeah, and it's that's what the reason I mentioned all those road deaths uh, today, the 165, it's the families that are left behind and then the, the wasted lives when you think of those two young 18-year-olds, one about to do a leaving cert and one just starting in college, you know, so much potential and their families will have to live with that for the rest of their 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 lives. So yeah, I, I understand and feel the pain in your text and thanks for sharing your story with us on 86 And Michael says, with reference to speeding, number one, our roads are not fit for purpose. That is not saying that you can develop a speed that if you had wings, you could lift off. Where I have a problem is where on a standard dangerous road, you have a continuous white line. And within that white line, you have the cat's eyes embedded. Now, if I catch up with the cyclist, you cannot cross the line to overtake him or her. In my thinking, the cat's eyes break the white line and cannot no longer be deemed a continuous white line. In order for that white line to serve its purpose, the cat's eyes should run parallel to the white line and not not be embedded in it. I've seen this, says Michael, outside of Ireland in other countries. I don't think that Percy Shaw, who invented the cat's eyes, ever visualise the cat's eyes being embedded into a white line. And that's from Michael. Thank you for that, Michael. And then when somebody said that they were stopped by the Gardaí for tax and insurance, somebody said, surely the Gardaí are not doing checks for tax and insurance because they have all of the modern technology in their cars. So, the, you know, the onboard computers. So they know exactly who has tax and insurance. Well, according to one of our listeners in West Cork, they were stopped for and it was for tax and uh, insurance. 0818 Hi, uh, Patricia. There is a lot more people now living in Ireland than there was in recent years. Could that be one of the reasons for the extra road deaths. We have a higher population uh, in our country. And I, I don't know if they ever factor in population versus how many people are killed on our roads. Because when you think about it, the, the, the figures I was comparing them to was only from, from uh, two years ago or four years ago, 2019. So yes, the population has increased, but I mean, it hasn't taken up by a million people since 2019. And yet the way our road deaths has, has jumped is absolutely frightening. Anyway, this listener, those two young teenagers from Donegal, they were simply returning home from a part-time job. God help them. May they rest in, ple- in peace. Please stay safe, uh, everyone. And hi, Patricia. This is, oh, this is back on. Thank you. This is Phil in Lyons Shoe Shop in Mallow is listening to us. And uh, Phil has been on to say, if anybody's looking for an empty shoebox, because you know the way you don't always have a shoebox at home. If anybody wants it, they have plenty of empty shoeboxes. If you want to take the shoebox, cover it up in the Christmas paper and then fill it up. Thank you for that, Phil. That's Phil in Lyons uh, Shoe Shop on the main street in uh, Mallow. And actually, most shoe shops are really good about handing over shoeboxes for anybody looking to get a shoebox to fill for the Christmas shoebox uh, appeal. And then back to rehoming a dog from a shelter. Hi, Patricia. I am looking for a dog and I would love a rescue dog. But all the rescue groups are so hard to deal with. The last dog I ended up having to buy 
because I did attempt to get uh, a rescue. I have a dog at the moment, but I really would love a companion for the dog. The rescue centres need to make it uh, easier. But I suppose the rescue centres will say that they are trying to find a forever a forever home for a dog that may have been badly treated and may have had a really, really tough uh, start. So they have to make sure that all of those dogs are going to the right uh, forever home. But yes, I've heard that many times before that the rescues make it very, very difficult because they want to make sure that the dogs are going to good uh, good homes. 0818103103. Bernie, taking your calls. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council delivering roads and housing, community and business supports all across the county. See corkcoco.ie. Shambali Moore Bingo is on tonight at 8 in the community centre. They've got a jackpot of €2,850. Clonakilty Special Olympics are hoping for a good attendance at their follow-up meeting tomorrow at 8 o'clock in the local community youth centre. In the meantime, they're appealing to people who were previously involved in the club to renew expired membership by emailing renewal at specialolympics.ie for anyone new who might be interested or anyone who'd like to volunteer email munster at specialolympics.ie to show your interest. Well-known historian John Mulcahy will tell the story of the Republic versus Bridie McKay the spy who survived the troubles it's in Kofa House Church Street on Shandon tomorrow evening at half past seven all are welcome and Kildallery Drama Group are presenting Spinning the Beans it's described as a hilarious sequel to The Second Confession by Paddy Heffernan. It opens tomorrow, Wednesday, and it runs nightly at 8pm up to next Sunday the 12th at the store in Kildare. Tickets are €12, Euro, under-16s are €5, Euro, and it's available from the community office are Thornton's Opticians. Proceeds from the opening night, by the way, are going to the Cork and... Cork Ark Cancer Support House. Cork today on C103. Well, just let me catch up on a final uh, number of texts and comments that are, are coming in. Uh, Eddie from Mahan is raising an interesting point. You know, this morning we've had, a, we've had well, two separate people. One is looking for restaurants that are open on Christmas uh, Eve evening. Would like to take the family out for dinner. And then somebody else was on to us to say, is there any, war, is there any hotels opening on, on Christmas Day that will be serving Christmas lunch and Christmas uh, dinner. That led Eddie from Mahan to say some people think that workers in the hospitality business don't have lives. Are they not entitled to enjoy Christmas the same as the rest of us? So Eddie's of the view that all of those hospitality restaurants and a lot do close and a lot do close for that reason to give their staff time off because the lead up to Christmas can be the busiest time within the hospitality uh, sector and many do close over Christmas but there'll always be some that will remain open and Eddie is pondering and, and thinking is that wrong on the workers should all of them remain uh, closed from say I don't know what would you be suggesting Eddie six o'clock Christmas Eve and uh, give Christmas Eve and certainly Christmas Day uh, off I'd be interested are people with Eddie on that one that all hospitality should uh, simply shut down 0818103103 and the Michael has been on to say that on the you know the Angelus that they show on RTE1 just before the six o'clock news he says there was a there's a garden centre featuring on now it's a different 
little film clip they show every day. But he says there's a garden centre in Charleville and he's wondering where in Charleville is that garden centre. So does anybody know the garden centre that is featured in the Angelus on RTE1? Michael is trying to find out where that garden centre is. If anybody knows, uh, please let us know. Hi, uh, Patricia. This is on uh, Ageing Well. My mum was in great health until the end of her life. But when she became ill, she simply had to go to hospital. To say that we were greatly disturbed by her hospital care is an understatement. And that is really worrying. And I think, yeah, that's a lot to do with this commission of care. Well, whatever about when somebody becomes ill and has to go to hospital, but it's when somebody needs long term care uh, that we just need to look at it. And you know, as a government, they've decided to do this commission on care. And that's why they're asking for you know, people's thoughts on, and we're all, let's be honest, we're all going to get old one day. So I suppose in the ideal world, what kind of care are we looking for, both for our own loved ones and ultimately one day for ourselves? And uh, sorry and disappointed to hear that you, you felt your mum wasn't looked after well. And that's a, a tough, tough thing for a family to watch. 0818 103 103. Someone else says, Patricia, there are many older people who live well into their 90s in good physical and mental health. Scientists and doctors should figure out what makes these older people still live so healthily well into their 90s. They must have advantages that they would like to share. Thank you for reading out my text. I read a piece a few weeks ago um it's the oldest woman alive. I, don't, I think she's still alive. She was, oh God, she was well over 100, was she 110 plus. And uh, they were asking her and she had, she had, her diet was good, all right. And she did speak about, uh, about her diet. But she also remember one thing that stuck out in the interview was she spoke about always staying around positive people and that if uh, all throughout her life, if she would never hang out with or be friendly with people that were negative. And if she came across very negative, uh, people should simply move away from them and she said you need to surround yourself with very positive people and didn't Alice Taylor touch on that yesterday one of the chapters in her book is the the wet day woman where you know everything is bad the weather is always bad there's always aches and pains nothing's ever right and we all know negative people like that but I do know that that the oldest woman in the world said that keep away from the negative people and stay as close to positive people as you can thank you for your text and when we're talking about driving and the amount of accidents on a road. Somebody says, Patricia, there's just been a crazy car driver in the Skibbereen area and that was only a little while ago. So we do have some lunatic drivers out and about on the road. And people getting stopped for tax and insurance. When I said I haven't been stopped in many years and yet somebody said that they were stopped, I think going into Bandon. Um, I think it was only this morning. Somebody else says, Patricia, I was also stopped on the bank holiday Monday. I was just turning off towards Danos. This is in Mallow going out the Mount Al Road. I was very surprised to be stopped and they were checking for tax and uh, insurance. So somebody else reckoned that that shouldn't be going on because all of the guard, the cars now have computers on board where they're able to, they have the technology where a car can just drive by and they'll be, they, they will be able to tell if it has tax and uh, insurance. 0818 103 103. Bernie continues to take your calls. You can text her WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. Court today on C103. And Joe Heffernan, who runs a counselling practice in Boherbui, joining us on this uh, Tuesday afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. 
Good afternoon, Patricia. And today we're going to talk about assertiveness. And this yeah. is this is different to... Uh, assertiveness is, is more to do with the ability of being able to say no. You don't have to necessarily be aggressive. Some people mistake assertiveness with aggression. And they're two very different things. They are. I mean, a basic definition, Patricia, would be assertiveness. It's the ability to ask directly for what you want or to say no to what you don't want. It's, it's, it's as straightforward as that. But for many of us, it's very difficult to be assertive. So today we can do what I call our assertiveness test. Now, the peculiar thing about the scoring on this, which we'll give afterwards, um, is the lower the score you get, the better. Okay. So we'll be calling out 11 items. And a person can either in their heads or on a bit of paper just tick the ones um, that uh, I would be saying, yeah, that's me. Um, you know, it, it can be a dot, it can be a... a so stroke, you're only counting be, the yeses to these statements, not the no's. Only counting the yeses. The yeses. Okay. And as I say, the, the, the least amount of yeses, the better. The more assertive you are. Okay, so yeah. 11 questions. Let's get, through, let's get to them. Okay, the first one. I say yes too quickly and then regret that I have taken on something I do not really want to do. Yes or no? Having, number two, having said yes, I find it extremely difficult to contact the person to tell them that I've now reconsidered, I've changed my mind and I cannot now comply with the request. You know the way... You would have said yes, and then you're thinking, oh, God, I'm really sorry that I said yes. Why did I let myself in for this? And that a person finds it extremely difficult to pick up the phone or to send a text or to contact the person directly to say, look, I know I said yes, but I've reconsidered. I won't be able to comply with that. Okay. Number three, I find it very difficult to tell friends or family members and friends um, that they have done um, something that upsets me or offends me. I just kind of soak it up instead of saying, um, I felt very uncomfortable with what you said there the other day, or I find it very difficult to have heard that. Um, So um, uh, instead of saying I find it very difficult that we just kind of ingest it or interject it and, uh, and then resent it, but we haven't said anything. Number four, I find it hard to tell survey requests, call calls on the phone that I'm too busy right now and that I need to hang up um, uh, and then I do hang up if they're very pushy. Um, uh, I have found that once or twice that somebody rings about we're doing a survey and, um, you know, I would comply if I could, but um, if I'm, uh, which I usually am, if I have other things that I really need to do, I just say that. Yeah. And I've never, I've, I, they've never been pushy. But anyway, I find it hard to tell survey requests, call calls on the phone, that I'm too busy right now. And there's a number of cold calls will come to the door as well, usually at the completely wrong time, trying to yes. get you to change energy provider or something like that. And it's always at the wrong time. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Well, now, number five. 
I find it difficult to tell salespersons, say, in shops, that I'm just browsing. That if someone comes along and says, can I help you? That I can say, um, actually, I'm, I'm just having a look around. I'm just browsing. I find that difficult. If that's a yes, that's a yes. Number six, a uh, one I come across fairly often. I find it difficult to voice my opinion when a group is discussing an issue, even when I think my opinion is a valid one. So, you know, I'd be thinking an hour later or two hours later, gosh, I should have said A or B or C, but I find it difficult to voice my opinion when a group is discussing an issue. Seven, I don't often ask for clarification when I'm confused about someone has said, in case it makes me seem uh, stupid or silly. So I kind of carry on with the conversation or whatever, and um, but I, I, I really I needed clarification. I didn't fully understand what they were saying, but I don't say that. I, I don't say, um, could you clarify that a bit for me, because... I didn't really get it. Um, uh, yeah, an example for me is I have a really bad sense of direction. I mean, really bad sense of direction. So I'm constantly having to ask people for uh, directions. And I, 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 will, I will stop the person and say, I'm really stupid about directions. You're going to have to go slower. You're going to have to explain that one again to me. And I have to because I, if, if I don't, I'll end up just having to stop somebody else. Yeah, yeah. Provided the person doesn't say, but I wouldn't start here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> famous Irish one. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't start from here. <laughs> okay, now, um, uh, number eight. I do not accept criticism well. I often get resentful or overreact to others who find fault in what I have done or said. So I do not accept criticism well. Um, and I suppose when criticism is put well, you know that it's um, that it's uh, not offensive. Um, that we should listen, and maybe we'd learn quite a lot. Yeah, but sometimes some uh, of us will, might be ticking yes to I do not accept criticism well. Okay, uh, number nine is kind of the opposite to number eight. I do. I have difficulty accepting compliments, and sometimes sometimes downplay my accomplishments, appearance, or abilities. So if somebody says, "God, you did that very well," I might say something like, "I don't know, um, um, you know, I, I thought I made a bit of a bags of it, or something like that." That we don't accept compliments very well. I think that's an Irish thing, though. Yeah, I really yeah. do think, and I know for, for, for ladies, you know, when somebody admires something on you, instead of saying, oh yes, thank you very much, we straight away, the, the famous line is, this Penny's girl, or, oh that's very old, or, you know what I mean? We just, I really do think it's an Irish thing. We're right. very bad to accept compliments. Yeah, yeah. I need to work say, on yeah, that. If, if, if somebody pays one uh, a nice compliment, um, you know, that's a lovely course you've on you. Um, thank you very much. We wouldn't just say thank you. Yeah, that's all you have to say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead of, you know, I have that 15 years. Yeah. This old thing. To, to yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Now, number 10 of our 11, number 10, I find it difficult to ask a favour of another. Yeah, I, I just, I find it difficult to ask a favour. Um, 
I don't know whether it's a fear of a refusal or whether we know that if it isn't complied with that we'll be resentful or what it is. But some people will be ticking that one. I find it difficult to ask a favour of another. Uh, I'd say in fairness to myself that wouldn't be one I'd be ticking if I wanted something done. I would ask a favour. Mm. And um, and usually the answer is okay. Uh, I, I I can do that. Yeah. Now, number 11. And this is uh, one. Uh, yeah, I could ha- I would have a story with this one. I am very reluctant to complain about or return an improperly prepared meal in a restaurant or a defective item that I purchased in the, uh, in the shop. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I think it's maybe a bit of an Irish thing too. I remember being on the ferry to England one time um, with a good friend of mine um, who since has uh, passed on. He's dead now. And um, I, got, uh, I, I got a bit of steak anyway. And, you know, I know to be quite candid about it, it was not good. It was not good. And I sent it back and... My friend was, uh, well, I'll tell you the truth, it happened twice because the replacement was even worse. And um, when the second one went back anyway, my friend Jerry uh, said, uh, you know, he, he said, for the love of God, will you stop? That's, this is awful. I mean, he was really, really embarrassed. That, but in fairness to me, um, it, it wasn't right. Yeah. And, um, and the third one was perfect. So, it works. Yeah, yeah, I've, yeah, I, a defective item I would return, but yeah, I'm with you on, I, I, I would find it hard in a restaurant returning a meal. Right. Yeah, and, and yeah. like restaurants will say to you that you're better off returning it rather than I'd meet you then saying, God, I went into such and such a restaurant, I had a disastrous meal. And that's the worst thing you could do for yeah. the reputation of the restaurant. So you are better off speaking up and saying... And, and they prefer it. Yeah, they do, they do. Yeah, okay, yeah, so now they make a mistake. Out of the 11, you, ha- you had to add it up. Now, I have to say, the ones that I was all the really bad on is those first ones where I say yes to something and I have huge regrets going, I really don't want to go to that event or I really don't want to do X, Y and Z and then I'll find it hard to come up with an excuse why I, why I can't go. So I'm certainly very, very guilty of uh, that um, and, uh, and also the one about complaining in the restaurant I know I'm bad for that and I certainly don't accept compliments well so I'd be in the second category of the four to six ticks but okay four to six. you're well, saying ze- just, um, zero I, I, to three just where, where one would be with the score will I yeah well zero to three is the lowest this is the best these not are the very three. yeah very assertive people indicates general comfort in expressing your preferences and opinions as well as a generally high confidence level so not to three excellent Really good. Four to six. Scores in this range may indicate a general discomfort in requesting what you want, difficulty refusing what you don't want, and hesitation in expressing your feelings. So that's in the four to six range. Okay. And now we're getting to where things are a bit, um, uh, would need to have a, a look at. Um, seven to ten. Your responses have indicated that you may have a great deal of difficulty asserting yourself in a wide variety of situations. Assertiveness is not just a matter of getting what you want. It's communicating effectively and learning, learning not to give in 
when you don't want to. So, as I said at the very beginning, it's the ability to ask directly for what you want or to say no to what you don't want. And those 11 questions would sort of be a greater indication of whether one is good at assertiveness or not. Yeah, and then and it's something we all just need to work on. Yeah. And as I said at the outset, you don't have to be aggressive when you're saying no to something, but it's to, just to be able to say, no, I really don't want to do that or that doesn't work with me. You know, yeah. and even the simple one of the, of the salesperson in the shop, just say, no, I'm browsing, I'm, I'm fine. It's just, it's, it's to find your voice really, isn't it? And to, and to speak up. You, you couldn't say it better. It's yeah. to find your voice. And, um, you know, and, and not to have put yourself in situations that you later kind of think, oh God, I should have, uh, you know, I should have this or I should have that or, you know. And we all do it. We all, we're all guilty we of it. We are. Okay, listen, uh, Joe, thank you for that. We'll speak again in the coming weeks, but thanks for joining us today and uh, look after yourself. And the same, Patricia. Take care. Bye bye. That is Joe Heffernan. Joe runs a counselling practice in Boherbui. His number is 086 834 Talking about assertiveness. Lisa says, just listening uh, to Joe Heffernan, they're talking on assertiveness and the ability to say no. I suppose it's saying no to the task, not to the person. That's a great way of putting it as well. Thank you for that. OK, that's where I leave you for today. Thanks to Bernie, who produced and talked to you tomorrow. Ten, Talk to today. Good afternoon. On-